This is Linux Unplugged, episode 46 for June 24th, 2014. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's reporting in from Charlotte, North Carolina. My name is Chris. Hello, Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello. Hello. Hi there. So uh, we're uh, we got a we got a big show today because we got more stuff from Southeast Linux Fest 2014. Matt's joining us on Mumble this week. We're going Mumble Mumble for all of the audio, which uh, we'll see how that works. It's a it's an experience. So far, it's been a little uh, little troublesome, but I think we worked out the kinks enough to do a show. And uh, we also have Q5 Sissies joined us today. He was down at uh, Southeast Linux Fest. Noah couldn't make it because I guess he's going to Australia. I guess I don't know. That guy's crazy. Ow. Yeah, I know. And he just down under. Okay. And he just sent me like an awesome little goodie bag of like stuff. Like he's got these BlackBerry chargers he loves, so he sent me a couple of those and like a microphone. And then the coolest thing ever, it lets you run HDMI over Ethernet. So we could have, like, machines up in the editing office that we could run down to the studio over our Ethernet and capture their full screens, 1080p capture, over the network. It's kind of cool. That's so, awesome. No, it's so cool. So we just sent all that kind of stuff in and got a bunch of great interviews we'll be playing today. But I thought, Matt, we would start with uh, uh, a little bit of uh, follow-up and feedback. Uh, Mr. Rotten Corpse, are, are you in here today? Mr. Mr. Paging yes. Mr. Rotten Corpse, did you uh, did you have anything to mention about the XBMC app uh, art that you've been working on? Paging Mr. Corpse. Oh uh, yeah, sure. Is my audio fun? Because it's kind of it's it's all right. It's enough to tell us about the XBMC app. Yeah, yeah. We're uh, I'm, me and uh, Rob Lowe are working on an update to the XBMC app. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, improvements to the artwork and language, and so there should be. A new version, a new update to it in about a day or two. Very cool, very cool. So it's better time than ever to have the Jupiter Broadcasting XBMC app. And I, I saw that you guys were working on that last night, and that's really cool. So I wanted to give a, a mention for that. So uh, let's jump into our feedback. Corky98 submitted an article to the Linux Action Show subreddit, kind of following up on our conversation regarding Mantle on the Linux Action Show this Sunday. He says, Hello, Chris. On this week's Linux Action Show, you showed a clip of an AMD representative announcing the possibility of Mantle support for Linux in the future. While this is all very good, Mantle is another proprietary solution to the, pro- to the problem of graphic APIs and is bound to eventually fail. I respect that the first few years, Mantle will probably outperform OpenGL and maybe even DirectX, but proprietary solutions will always run out of steam due to the amount of effort needed to maintain them. Money runs proprietary solutions, and AMD will not assign a large budget year after year to maintain the code. I did my research, and before I was old enough to remember OpenGL and DirectX, saw eye to eye. Here's John Carmack complaining about DirectX and a 2002 article summing up DirectX. In early 2000s, DirectX was considered shambles, and OpenGL was clearly an outperformer by then, by far. Then Microsoft stepped up their game and caught up. DirectX is still ahead because of that boost in support in the early 2000s. So what does this mean? It means that maybe Matt's assumption that OpenGL couldn't be fixed could be considered incorrect. OpenGL is, rest- is heavily restructured because the industry support for multiple versions of OpenGL and the newest version is not pushed 
unlike DirectX. Yes, OpenGL is very differently structured to DirectX, but it doesn't mean it cannot be saved. And there's also something he doesn't go into, but there's also an extension system to OpenGL that is also a good thing and a bad thing. But he thinks the important part is that uh, the same AMD representative said that before Mantle support, that a, a high-quality OpenGL driver was going to be provided for Linux. This is the news, Corky thinks, not Mantle support for Linux. Of course, they're lying, and they'll put a bit more work, release an entirely new version number, and it will still be pretty. <laughs> but he said, uh, also with things like Wayland coming down, uh, this completely coincides with Wayland becoming usable. So if they leave it for a year or two, wait for Wayland to get sort of figured out, wait to see where Valve pushes thing, and then maybe AMD will come along with either their, their new OpenGL or Mantle release. That's an interesting idea, Corky, and... Uh, Corky wanted to kind of write in essentially and chime in in support for OpenGL because both Matt and I were kind of like, well, OpenGL seems to be fine, but developers seem to have written the book on it and decided they're not happy with it anymore. And I think that was sort of the key piece that Matt and I were talking about. And um, I, I think that's still the case. I think part of the problem is that developers have just kind of checked out. I mean, Matt, am I missing anything? Is that kind of... Well, no, I, I think that's it. And I also think it's important to remember that my point was that the very first thing out of my mouth is I know squat about OpenGL. <laughs> that was the very first thing out of my mouth so i could i can't speculate on something i don't understand yeah so totally let's get that out of the way hey, let's just make so, that disclaimer <laughs> yeah let's, let's be clear on this so but that being said i do think that at the end of the day whether it's tinfoil or OpenGL or or pies out of the sky if the developers aren't into it that's a thing so we can try and tree hug our way through this like we usually do so like heavens, smell the coffee, you know. What you, okay, Matt. So let's take Heaven's Revenge's take here. Uh, Heaven Revenge, you think it's something to do with the kids? I think so because didn't all this graphics API hoopla happen in the late '80s, early '90s, where there was a whole bunch of different APIs, and then they all converged into one, well, two standards, yeah. DirectX and yeah. OpenGL. So they're just going back and making the whole bunch of problems all over again. Oh, I see Mantle what you're saying. The new developers Spanish. didn't learn the lessons of the past generation. Yeah, they don't know what well they, our older elders went through to get us to this point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah some of those gray, hair, gray hairs were well-earned fighting those battles that they're sort of retredging up. Uh, I, I will see. I, I, I think, um, I think that, you know, just to kind of cap off the whole mantle thing is it'll happen if gaming on Linux really becomes enough of a market force that people want to make money on it. And then that's when AMD will pull their head out of their ass. But by then, it will be too late to become uh, fully relevant and lock it in. So Sebastian writes in, uh, we got really up in a huff a couple of weeks ago about Alienware switching over to Windows for their quote-unquote Steam machine. Sebastian says, hey, guys, there's a video from E3 with the Alienware console that you talked about. In the video, they talk about being flexible and giving you the opportunity to upgrade to SteamOS or install the beta of SteamOS without voiding your warranty. So I thought uh, this was extremely interesting because this was a huge, like, like you know, they're, they're basically torpedoing their future SteamOS efforts. So here is the clip of uh, the uh, uh, Alienware rep. Now, if someone is interested in SteamOS, if they pick this up now, it's going to come with Windows and they'll be able to upgrade this later, correct? Absolutely. So uh, once SteamOS is finally out, or if you want to load the beta, you absolutely can load it on the system. We'll not void your warranty by any means. We'll support it. We'll even help you do it if you need instructions on how to do it. Um, SteamOS also works with the Xbox 360 gamepad. It also works with the Logitech gamepad and a few others. 
So uh, this is our SteamOS ready. Exactly. I know a lot of guys out there were a little bit hesitant when they first started hearing about these pre-built SteamOS boxes coming out, or in this case, a Windows OS box, because they're like, oh, why don't I build my own? This has a compelling value due to stuff like form factor and price, which is actually very impressive. So there you go. And that was on the Linus Tech Tips uh, YouTube page, and they talk about uh, the fact that, you know what, they're going to actually support um, users that want to install SteamOS. Does this make you feel better, Matt? makes me feel a little better because I feel like rather than living with their head in their clouds or off their butts, depending on how you want I feel like they're actually trying to embrace right. but basically placing res- responsibility onto the end user and not. I'm fine with that yeah. as long as they're not being debated about it. So, uh, Riley, you think it's a terrible idea. Terrible idea. Yes, because he still had to support their software, which is Windows, essentially, and he still had to do the license fees for it. And you have to support it after SteamOS does come out. They should have just waited for a stable build on SteamOS, but they did. They were just lazy, and I don't know what they did. <laughs> yeah, but they should have waited. For, yeah, for I, I think that's still it. I think, and I think the fact that they had a Windows UI ready to roll right out of the gate shows that they were kind of planning for things not to work out. They weren't fully into it, and I think that's, I think that's the real nail in the coffin. Uh, all right, Rod and Corpse, if you want to play devil's advocate, go ahead. I'll let you. Okay, so I was thinking maybe um, it's it's helpful in a way, not not necessarily it's 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 negative to the Steam OS, sure, but it could potentially be good because if they're calling the Steam Box or Steam Machine and people start seeing that more more often than really just re- regular Valve, you know, Steam users, and they see that the machine is able to be bought as a Steam Box, and then the next the next version is Linux, they will still see it as a Steam Box, and maybe have more, you know, likelihood to buy it. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Okay. I, I, I guess I could I could see that particular, like, if the user's just totally unaware, but it seems seems at least for the first year... I don't year, believe that. I'm just thinking it's a possibility. Okay. Okay. I was going to say, because, yeah, it seems like for the first year or two of this, of this console's life, the consumer's going to be pretty aware of what it is, because it's going to be the savvier of the groups buying initially. Um, I don't think like the most average consumer has any idea that the Xbox 360 runs a version of the NT kernel. I think it's totally irrelevant to them. They don't need to know it runs Windows. They don't give a crap that it runs Windows. And I think SteamOS machines would eventually be like that. But I think for the first couple of years, it's probably probably people who know what an operating system is probably know what the advantages of Windows over Linux are. Maybe I think I don't know. I uh, Pope, oh, go ahead, Matt. Well, I, I just wanted to drop one thing on here, is that at the end of the day, even if you know what the OS is, if they're trying to target gamers, a little thing called titles. Yeah, very and true. And they're trying to launch with as many titles as possible. Now, while I think Alienware is definitely kind of selling us all down the road, and certainly that's true, at the end of the day, it's a money grab. Expecting them to be all touchy-feely about it, it's just yeah. they're looking at making money, yeah. period. Yeah. They don't care. Yeah. They don't- yeah, and Poby, what's your point of view on this topic? I, they're a hardware manufacturer. They need to sell hardware. And I think uh, given SteamOS isn't out, um, I think it's perfectly reasonable for them to make a machine that runs whatever operating system is out at the time. Like right now, I would really love to have a box underneath my TV. I cannot be bothered to build something. I would rather buy off the shelf. And maybe I'm paying a premium for that. Maybe I'm not getting the same components. But I'm pretty sure there's plenty of people out there who are like me would buy something like over the internet or from a store. And 
if it happens to have Windows on it, so be it. In the same way that anyone else would buy a laptop that happens to have Windows on it, I'll stick it under my TV. Maybe I'll install Linux on it later when the Windows install becomes cruft laden and horrible. <laughs> and I, ha- I have to, because that's what Windows installs do, you know. So what you what do you do? You wipe it and you put Linux on it, and that's what people will do. Uh, Maybe so. I, they'll I, see I, it as a performance upgrade, a boost. Right. And I don't think it's a lazy thing. I think someone suggested that it was lazy of Alienware. I don't think it's lazy. They, they need to sell hardware. They've already put the R&D into making this thing. So it makes sense for them to ship the thing rather than leave it on shelves or yeah. like and mothball the thing. Do you think it maybe sense. it underscores the fact that they believe in a home theater PC type setup for console gaming and they think that's the real revolution is getting a pc that powerful and that form factor in the living room with a controller capable ui that's the that's the thing that they they believe in not necessarily what operating system powers it exactly and the fact that they're willing to support people trying to get steam os on it uh, the beta of steam os you know all power to them you know if if anyone else had come out with a piece of hardware and said look we're running a proprietary os but we will actively help you install an alternative os Surely that should be applauded. Oh, wait, 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 wait. You said commercial software. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Richard. <laughs> he wanted to clear that up. Yeah, you. right. All right, well, uh, we're going to get into uh, Southeast Linux Fest. Uh, we'll have more links, uh, including some additional info that didn't quite fit in uh, in the show notes if you guys want to check that out. Before we go on, I want to thank DigitalOcean, one of the sponsors of the Linux Unplugged podcast. Now, you know about DigitalOcean, right? Because it's kind of like one of the coolest companies to come around in a while. It's simple cloud hosting, and D- DigitalOcean is dedicated to offering really the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a cloud server. And, you know, I mean, sure, you can make a cloud server in under a minute. No bigs, right? Wrong! It's a huge deal! Users can create a cloud server in under 55 seconds, and pricing plans start only $5 a month for 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20-gigabyte SSD, a blazing fast CPU, and one terabyte of Tier 1 bandwidth. Plus, DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, and Amsterdam. But, man, that interface... Mm, that interface is simple, man. That interface is intuitive with a control panel that won't stop, and power users can replicate it on a large scale with DigitalOcean's straightforward API. And that stands for Application Programming Interface. Think about the possibilities. In fact, people have, because DigitalOcean has a badass community with a ton of people growing all around it every single day, and they're making applet controllers for Ubuntu and that Mac operating system and all those other operating systems where you can control your DigitalOcean droplet right from your desktop. And of course, because you can get a droplet imaged, deployed, spun up super fast, it saves you time, makes it really easy to back up, makes it crazy simple to revert if you make a mistake it's the you know in fact that makes it ideal for training too so many possibilities run your back-end infrastructure train yourself replace a cloud service for five dollars a month why not well i'll tell you why maybe you're going to be cheap i understand i mean five dollars is not very much money but you want a better deal you want something even better well guess what chris is going to hook you up going to hook you up you want to know what you can do Use the promo code UnplugJune. Use the promo code UnplugJune. When you check out, you're going to get a $10 credit over at DigitalOcean. If you use the $5 rig that I've been using for a while, and you're going to get a ton of machine. And let me, let's be honest, we're talking about Linux here. We're talking about something that excels as a server operating system in really, really different, uh, varying different environments. I mean, it's, that's, what's, that's what's so great about it. And it's amazing what you can get for $5 a month. And if you use our promo code UnplugJune, UnplugJune to get you a $10 credit. Bob's your uncle. You're going to get to try that droplet for two months. They also have hourly pricing. 
So if you want to just try something out for testing, you can. There's lots of reasons to try out DigitalOcean Super Fast Provisioning. SSD hard drives, tier one bandwidth, amazing hardware, sitting on top of KVM virtualization, private networking, an active developer community, just a rocking community in general. Go check them out, digitalocean.com, and use the promo code UnpluggedJune. Don't be a fool. Go get yourself your own cloud server with root access up in the cloud, connected to tier one bandwidth for only $5 a month. Unplug June when you check out. That lets them know you heard about it right here on the Coder, Coder, on the Linux Unplug show. And by the way, keeps us going. And that's also a really good thing. Big thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring Linux Unplugged. Okay, guys. So, um, uh, Mr. Q5, is there anything you want to set us up with uh, Southeast Linux Fest before we uh, move on and get into uh, some interviews? I've got uh, six clips I want to play here on the show. All really good stuff. Our first one uh, is Zach Underwood. Now, I don't know, Mr. Sis, is there anything you want to kind of set us up with before we jump right in, or should we just start? Um, well, I do want to end up with something. But before we jump uh, in with Zach's video, I mm-hmm. do have to say that, you know, for those of us that were there at Linux Fest Northwest, we realize and we remember that the wireless network situation was <laughs> kind of bad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the wireless network itself was phenomenal. Oh, snap. Um, absolutely fantastic connection. The way they had it set up, the way they did everything was the way it should have been done. This guy, Zach, he knows what he is doing. Now, um, it, how many how many people in attendance? Do you know? Do you have a rough number like uh, versus uh, Northwest versus Southeast? Um, I don't have an exact number. Um, was it more or less know. people? Because I might uh, explain I the Wi-Fi. It was, it was a little bit less. Okay. Um, but Not just the way that the conference was set up, um, I would say about the same. Yeah. You know, in you know the area at the same time. Yeah. You know, Linux West Northwest had higher volume, but I think I would say with Southeast, I think more people stayed around for the whole day. Interesting. Interesting. So, hey, that's always a big plus when the wireless works. All right. Well, we'll kick it off with uh, Zach's uh, interview, and then you can chime in with anything you want to add, and we'll, uh, we'll run through some of these. So uh, we'll send it over to uh, Zach Underwood. Good afternoon. We are still at Southeast Linux Fest, going around table to table, meeting a bunch of exciting people. Zach here from Global Vision drove two hours to not only be at Southeast Linux Fest, but he is giving me Internet tokens. Isn't that right, Zach? Yes, I am. So <clears throat> this is possible. Possibly uh, your presentation, which is coming up in uh, an hour or so, yeah, um, is going to be the, the presentation I am looking forward to the most out of any of them here at Self, and it primarily because I have a particular problem that we were kind of discussing off camera um, that I've been trying to find a solution, and your expertise in this area is going to be. Uh, I, at least I hope, is going to be instrumental into fixing this problem. So if you could tell me a little bit about what exactly um, your presentation and, and specifically your, your company does and um, what it is, the service that you provided here at Self. All right, first off, I'll start off with um, the company. Um, my company is Global Vision. We're a uh, wireless ISP. So we provide wireless Internet to clients that typically maybe have only DSL and they want something better than the 1.5 meg DSL. Um, so we set up a tower with access points, and then we point um, client radios on the client's house to the tower to show them internet. Um, So what we're doing, my presentation here at Self is basically how to optimize indoor wireless, um, particularly in a multi-access point environment. So you would have in a hotel or a conference room. A lot of the stuff I'm going to be talking about is not really applicable to a single 
radio. That, those are pretty easy. That's that's pretty that's pretty simple. Um, and so I'm going to be talking about um, optimizing it for performance, for speed, the difference between 2.4 gigahertz and 5 gigahertz um, radios, and basically just how to make Wi-Fi not suck. So. Give me an idea for somebody who is maybe looking at setting up a very simplistic uh, wireless network. Maybe they want something just a little bit better than the integrated radio that's in their that's in their router. Um, what do you recommend for just a single autonomous access point? Um, I. I'm very bullish on um, a vendor called Ubiquity. Mm -hmm. They are very price conscious. Um, they make a wireless access point called the UAP. It retails for about 69 bucks, and it competes with Cisco access points that go for six or seven hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a little bit of a learning curve with these systems. Um, first off. None of the Ubiquity radios you can actually log into and see a web interface. Mm -hmm. You have to use a separate management um, software, which they give away for free. They don't charge a license. Thank you, Cisco. Um, so the UAP is a great choice for an AP, and we actually deploy them quite often to our clients. So, and we, we have set up a number of the Unify access points. Um, how does that, how do those work with Linux? Um, they actually work really well. Um, they actually run Linux, and you can SSH into the radios. They're running um, BusyBox, which is a very stripped-down, embedded version of Linux. How about for the, uh, the management service? If I wanted to stay away strictly from a Mac or Windows environment, can I do that? Yes. Um, they actually prefer to run the management server on a Linux platform, um, in this case Debian and Ubuntu. Um, it is a Java-based app that uses MongoDB for the back end. Outstanding. And if people wanted to find more about Global Vision and the concepts that you're talking about, where can we direct them to? Um, globalvision.net and anyone feel free to email me. I am zunderwood at globalvision.net and I'll be happy to send you a copy of the presentation. Outstanding. Thank you so much, Zach, for taking some time to talk with us. All right. Thank you. Wait a minute, Wimpy. You're connected to us right now by shortwave radio. That's some kind of special. Yeah, we can hear you. That, so, are you, where do you where do you live that you have to connect by shortwave radio? Well, as I learned today, about 15 miles from Popey, but uh, apparently in the back of beyond. So, uh, in 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 the farming belt of North Hampshire. I, I love that those APs run Linux. Like that's I'm all about that. Like, oh yeah, you can just SSH in and run BusyBox, and then you can pretty much do everything you need. Uh, and it sounds like those guys really knew their Wi-Fi stuff based on what uh, Q5 was saying. Uh, okay, well, so there's a group called Wicked, and they're working on a two-factor authentication system. And I haven't watched the whole clip yet, but I'm hoping it's essentially uh, an open solution to two-factor authentication. Let's take a listen. Here with Nick from Wicked and... Uh I don't know anything about Wicked right off the bat, but I got to tell you, from looking around your table and and looking at some of the promotional material you have, uh, I have to tell you, I'm intrigued. Can you tell me a little bit about what Wicked is and what it is you guys do? Sure. So um, we provide a two-factor authentication solution. Um, it is a uh, software-based solution. So the two factors are uh, possession of a private key embedded in a software token and knowledge of a PIN. Um, the, and we have a server that sits behind your corporate firewall. It's Linux-based, and um, the, there's a key pair exchange, basically, between the software token and your server, mm -hmm. and um, a PIN is created by the user, and there's a registration process. And after that, when the user wants to log in, they type their PIN into the software token. It's encrypted, sent to your server. If the PIN's correct and the encryption's valid and the account is active, a one-time passcode is generated on the server, encrypted, and returned to the user. Now, this is a, a solution that can be, uh, you said that it's, it's based on Linux. Can your system be used with Linux? 
Oh, yes. Um, so in your infrastructure, what you want to do is establish um, a authentication protocol. Typically what we see is companies use Radius. So um, your VPN, SSH, Apache, um, FreeNX, all these systems will talk Radius. And the um, ideal thing is to have them all talk Radius to your a free radius server or you know, in the windows world it'd be nps mm-hmm. have it do authorization in your directory mm-hmm. and then proxy the credentials to a um, authentication server like wicked sure okay um is does this to get this product rolling? Does it take a lot of um, a lot of knowledge in the development field, or is it something that an administrator could do? No, it's and it's primarily targeted administrators, and uh, we've got a very easy uh, setup process. Um, we're trying to make it as easy to set up as software as a service, but be reliable and be in your um, in your location. So it, this isn't a subscription-based model. It's something you buy one outright. Um, actually, our licensing is different. We have a subscription licensing. Um, so instead of having a permanent license and charging you twenty bucks, you know, twenty percent per year for support, we actually charge an annual subscription. But you still control the software. Um, we have a three-year prepayment option, so you can get a discount if you prepay. But we kind of looked at it as being like, well, you know, do you really want to pay up front for all of our software? And then maybe what if we got a business? So it's less risk for our buyers. Um, We're incented to keep the software up and running and solid and secure. So it kind of aligns our incentives. Um, And, you know, the the thing is, is that funding model um, is probably a little bit more beneficial to your business to have that that steady income rather than, uh, you know, somebody, you know, they they come in and then they buy it and then they take off, right? Yeah, so it makes it it harder to grow fast Mm -hmm. because if you get that big chunk of money, you can actually grow fast, but it makes it more disciplined. And we're not going to grow faster than we can grow our marketplace. Now, how does this? How does your product compare to something like, say, Google Authenticator? So, Google Authenticator is primarily, you know, their software token. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a, like a PAM module that you can run um, for SSH. Um, there's two key differences. One is that um, it is an addition to passwords. So, we prefer to get rid of passwords because mm-hmm. they suck. Right. <laughs> um, and it's also really just a PAM module. So what happens when you want to use it for your VPN? Mm-hmm. Uh, where's the integration for that? Where's right. the Apache module? So if you're, if you're doing a one-off thing and you just want to walk, lock down you know, the couple servers that you mm-hmm. manage or have at home, that's great. If you're really looking at d- deploying something that can help your organization grow and manage users and have logging and have support, that's where you'd look to Wicked. Outstanding. Where can people go to find out more about Wicked and what you guys do and how to get involved or to, I guess in your case, how to purchase the product or service? So um, uh, wickedsystems.com, W-I-K-I-D systems.com. We have a source forge site, so we've got an open source version, and we do welcome contributions to that. Um, And uh, we are on Twitter at Wicked Systems uh, as well. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. We really appreciate it. I like, uh, it says, uh, Doggo Red in there, Dago Red in the chat room says that they were also giving out mixed drink, uh, mixed shake, like drink shakers as swag at the fest. <laughs> that's awesome. That's a great swag item. I kind of want to check that out. And again, that's Wicked, and it's a W-I-K-D-Q5. Did you get a chance to look at that stuff? What did you think? Uh, yeah, their stuff is actually really impressive. Um, and just to let you know, I did happen to get one of those drink shakers for it. So <laughs> oh, for me? I will drop that in the mail. <laughs> no way! Yes, I did. Oh, awesome. I saw it and I was like, this is something Chris would love. I do. I, do. I, said, I looked at the guy and I said, I'm going to take two. And he's like, well, I really don't have that many. And I said, well, we're doing an interview. <laughs> he goes, yeah, okay, I can afford two. <laughs> Good man. Good man. Well, uh, I love that. And, you know, I'm, I'm so glad Noah got the uh, Google Authenticator question in there because that was totally what I was thinking too. So Q5, were you, uh, were you on camera for these interviews 
Was that you? Um, I was actually the man behind the camera yeah. for all of these. Okay. Okay. Wow. Very awesome. Okay. Our next group is the Internet System Consortium, and uh, Noah stopped by and had a quick chat with them. And I believe they just had their just celebrated their twentieth birthday too. We're here with Chuck from ISC, the Internet uh, Systems Consortium. How are you doing today, Chuck? Real good. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Now, um, to start out, if you can tell me a little bit about what ISC is and what it is you guys do. Well, ISC is uh, has been around uh, in the Internet for a long time. We just had our 20th birthday uh, this spring. Uh, ISC is the author and publisher of uh, the Bind9 uh, DNS software that most of the Internet uses now. Um, we also have... Uh, uh, ISC DHCP product, which again is is the standard implementation of DSC across most of the uh, internet. Um, in addition to uh, the software services, we provide we provide su- support for free software. In fact, that's a, a good deal of what funds the company is, uh, and that's my job. I'm a support engineer, and. Uh, in addition, we do have a, a hosting service, uh, which we have a commercial side and a uh, public benefit side. Mm-hmm. And we have um, we do DNS hosting, uh, SNS secondary name service, mm-hmm. uh, which again is split into a public benefit and a commercial side. We also maintain the uh, F root root name server, mm-hmm. which is uh, an AnyCast server all across the world. Um, I I'm, I don't know exactly how many nodes it has, but uh, Fruit is everywhere, and uh, um, we do a lot of cool stuff to uh, benefit the internet. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking time to meet with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, and I also I, I didn't get a chance to fit in because we put one in the last week's episode, but uh, another Slackware advocate too, right? Q five. It seems like Slackware was big down there. Is that just the impression I got from these clips? Oh, yeah. Slackware users came out in force. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah. actually, talking with Chuck, his whole family uses Slackware. His wife uses it. His 17-year-old son uses it. His 15-year-old daughter uses it. <laughs> his entire family runs Linux. That's awesome. And, the, yeah, he made the comment, like, if Slackware is meant for you, it'll eventually find you. You don't have to find Slackware. <laughs> I love it. You know, that's so cool. And it's good to see, like, you go to these kind of events, you get everybody together and one of the old dog distros is still getting a lot of love. Uh, before we go to our next a group of clips, I want to thank our second sponsor this week, and that is the great folks over at Ting. Go to linux.ting.com. That'll take $25 off your first device. Or if you've got a device that's compatible, well, then they'll just give you a $25 Ting credit. And if you're like me, that might pay for more than your first month of service. Uh, in fact, go to linux.ting.com. Click that How Much Would You Save button right there and plug in how much you actually use. So I decided I'm taking like a husband, wife, you know, a spousal or, a, you know, whatever your situation is, two people, plug in your actual minutes. And I kind of, I highballed here. I went 800 minutes, 500 text messages, and two gigabytes of data. Now, this isn't what you're paying for. This is what you actually use. And I was generous. I said, you're going to get that for 150 bucks a month. That's probably, probably, I mean, you're probably going to pay more than that. But we're going to lowball it a little bit here. When I calculate the savings, I could see that by switching to Ting over a two-year period, I would save 
$2,064 by switching to tinglinux.ting.com. That's where you want to go. And once you become a Ting customer, I'll tell you, there's a few things about the Ting service you're going to absolutely love. First of all, it's a flat $6 per month, and then it's just your usage on top of that, plus whatever cut the man's going to take. But really, it's a flat $6, and then your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. Ting adds them all up at the end of the month. Whatever bucket you fall into, that's all you pay. The great part is their dashboard makes it crazy easy to see where you're at. You can track individual devices, set limits, set alerts, go in there and set up call 40 when you miss a call. All that kind of stuff that you're always wondering, hey, what's that code I'm supposed to enter in my phone to activate this feature? Ting exposes all of that through their dashboard and through their companion apps on Android and iOS. Lots of nice things about Ting. And I also want to point out that when you're over at Ting, go to linux.ting.com to get started. Try out that savings calculator. And then after you've played around for a little bit, head over to the blog. They got a really they, – they, they do – Ting really – really puts a lot of effort into this blog and there's a ton of good content even for non-ting customers but what i want to point your attention to is if you're in a contract and you know you want to switch to ting but you're not ready to go whole hog and cancel your contract i want to remind you that ting does have an early termination relief program ting.com slash etf you can find out more about that there's also another system they've set up ting reminders ting will just send you a nice little gentle nudge when your contract expires and says hey bro why don't you move over to ting now We'll get you taken care of. They've also got a new swap program to help you swap up to a Galaxy device and move over to Ting. Linux.ting.com. Check them out. No-hold customer service, voicemail, caller ID, tethering, hotspot, three-way calling, call forwarding, all other features you'd expect, all part of your service, no hidden charges, no BS. It's really quite awesome. Linux.ting.com. And a really big thanks to Ting for sponsoring Linux Unplugged. been using them for well over a year now. And it totes rocks. I got my uh, recently bricked Ubuntu Touch Nexus 5 on the Ting Network. And until I tried to do today's update, I was quite enjoying uh, using it on the Ting Network. But now, now I'll just use Android. Okay. Now we're going to move over to uh, the BSD folks. And uh, if you haven't gone to one of these fests, you got to understand how these BSD guys work. They are sneaky. They get in there. They talk nice to people, they play nice, they, they listen to the Linux users and they politely nod their head, and then they say, here, Linux user, take these horns, put these horns on, and then walk around with these flashing. It is subversive, it's devious, and it works every time. And uh, Noah had a chance to stop by and chat with Chris, Chris's brother, Chris Moore, uh, who you probably know from BSD now. Well, uh, he got a chance to talk with Ken Moore about PC BSD. Here with Ken Moore from the PCBSD project. How are you doing today, Ken? I'm doing very well, thank you. Well, uh, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to us. Now, I know that every time I see Alan June, he makes it a point to tell me. I, I gave we gave Alan a ride back um, from. Uh, uh, Linux Fest Northwest back to his hotel. And the entire way back, the conversation was dominated with the idea that everyone in the world to, should switch to BSD. Oh, of course. So uh, tell me a little bit about what your connection to the BSD project is and um, what, it is that, uh, what it is that you do. I am one of the developers on the PCBSD project. I generally focus on designing the graphical utilities to make system management, system administration, installing and running applications, doing all of that to make it simple for the user to basically use any system, any FreeBSD system. Now, um, PCBSD is primarily um, 
geared towards people that want to install it and run it on on like a laptop or a desktop. Is that is that correct? Yes, uh, PCBSD is more desktop focused. So any of the different desktop environments, we have them all available, and we just try to provide PCBSD utilities on the side for managing the FreeBSD specific functions in the background, like wireless and stuff, because they're very different from the way Linux is run. So. Um, since these since these projects are or since the project is very different from uh, the majority of Linux distributions, what would be an adv- what would be a reason that I would want to switch to PCBSD or maybe just give it a try and see what I think of it? Well, a couple of the things that come to me off the top of my head is the stability of FreeBSD. Since the operating system is completely separate from all the third-party packages, you can add and remove things like desktop environments and utilities and really configure your entire system however you want without having to worry about breaking your system. Uh, Another one is ZFS. We have ZFS natively on FreeBSD, and it is fabulous. That is actually the... um, required file system for PCBSD. Whenever you install a PCBSD system, you are installing onto ZFS. And then with that, we have a number of ZFS uh, functions that we use and tie in to create boot environments. So whenever you're going to perform an upgrade of your system, it'll automatically create a boot environment in the background. And if you don't like the upgrade, if something got changed, like it went to a new version of an application that doesn't work right, all you have to do is restart your system and say, oh, I want to go back to this older boot environment, and you're back to your system in less than a minute. Okay, well, thanks. So if, if somebody was interested in, in getting involved in the, in the PCBSD project or learning more about PCBSD, where could that person go? Uh, you can go to pcbsd.org, or we also have forums and a wiki and a blog, all of them just with the prefix. So wiki.pcbsd.org, forums.pcbsd.org, blog.pcbsd.org. Any of those sites will get you going and connect you to the project. Outstanding. Well, thanks a lot for taking time to meet with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I, I thought that was a great chat. And uh, unfortunately, maybe we'll get a chance to talk to uh, Ken about this more. They can get a chance to talk about that new desktop environment that PCBSD is working on. But they make a good case for running PCBSD. I'm digging that uh, that update snapshot system, Matt, where it's just sort of like, hey, you updated? Well, let me just create a little backup environment you could boot into. That's pretty nice. kind of want that. Oh, I love that idea. Yeah. I want that on everything I run. I, I, I wonder if once ButterFS is a little more widely adopted, a little more mature, if you might see distros integrating that. See, I mean... This is the nice thing that PCBSD has going for them is they really just focus on BSD and can focus on just what BSD supports so they can unilaterally do something like that. Now, we've got one more BSD clip to get to, uh, and uh, I'm really glad that Noah got a chance to chat with Drew. She's sort of world famous uh, for being, her involvement with the FreeBSD project and other things. I believe she's also been a guest on the BSD Now podcast. And uh, so I'm really, I, was, I was really glad they got a chance to chat with her. So here we'll play that clip now. As if one interview with uh, the people from the BSD project wasn't enough, we actually have two people here that we can talk to, and the second is Drew. Now, Drew, we were specifically asked to go seek out and talk to her. We were told that she has phenomenally interesting things to say by Alan. (laughs) How's that for a setup? Um, And so we're here with Drew today. How are you doing today, Drew? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Um, Tell me a little bit about what it is that you do with the BSD project and... um, uh, what it is that how how your role differs a little bit um, from the, the from the guys at the PCBSD project? Yeah, so I'm involved in a lot of little pots. So my main focus is on documentation. 
and my background is in system administration. So I write the documentation for both the PCBSD and the FreeNAS projects. And what we do is we aim to have a comprehensive user guide for every release of the operating system. So that sort of keeps me busy. I'm also involved with the FreeBSD project. So I'm one of the directors at the FreeBSD Foundation. And I also, as I can, I try to assist in the FreeBSD handbook. Because FreeBSD has always been uh, known for having very comprehensive um, documentation. So I try to assist with that as well. From my system administration background, um, I also care about, in addition to documentation, education, and ways to get uh, future uh, system administrators um, to have a good, solid base in open source. So uh, one of the things that we founded uh, 10 years ago is uh, the BSD certification group. So we concentrate on making sure that um, system administrators uh, know what skills employers are looking for when it comes to system administration, and we focus on the BSD operating systems. Now, I asked um, the gentleman from the PCBSD project um, what he thought a, a, the compelling argument was to give PCBSD a try. Can you give me um, the, what comes to mind as a compelling argument to give BSD a try on the back end, on the server? Yeah, so if we look at it from the FreeBSD point of view, which is the basically the, the base for the projects, PCBSD for FreeNAS, for PFSense, uh, I would agree with um, Ken's assessment that ZFS is definitely a big one. We've had ZFS for some time. It's very mature. It's very stable. And both the PCBSD and the FreeNAS projects are building on top of that ZFS base to make utilities, to make it easier, uh, to take advantage of the features built into ZFS. Some of the up-and-coming stuff that's uh, coming out of FreeBSD, uh, from a programming point of view, Capsicum is a really big deal. So Capsicum is a set of APIs that make it possible to take um, ap existing applications that were originally not designed to be secure, and you can um, hook... Um, redevelop those applications with a very small footprint to actually secure them. So Capsicum actually came out of uh, a project. Uh, FreeBSD was a reference-based system uh, with the University of Cambridge and Google, and they took the Chromium web browser, and nobody could accuse a web browser of being securely designed uh, from the beginning, and they were able um, to prove that they could secure that application in less than 100 lines of code. Wow, that is that is impressive, especially in a web browser. Um, if somebody was interested in finding more about uh, the server side of BSD or getting in contact, maybe even contributing to the project, how would somebody get in contact or do that? So FreeBSD has been around a very long time. It's a very large project. Uh, there are uh, several hundred committers, uh, dozens of people that work on documentation, um, hundreds of thousands of end users, so huge project. Um, because of that, um, and because it is an operating system, it really depends on which 
parts you're interested in. So, for example, we have several dozen mailing lists. So uh, somebody, if they're coming in on the development side and they're interested, say, in writing network device drivers, there would be mailing lists that would hook you into the right people to discuss that sort of thing. Uh, if you're interested in file systems or if you're a system administrator, you're interested in administration. So I would recommend go to the FreeBSD website, uh, check out the mailing lists. Because one of the things you want to do is you want to become familiar uh, with who's who in the community. And you also want the community to become familiar with you, what it is that you can bring to the table. And FreeBSD has always uh, been known as being a helpful community. Uh, but, you know, you have to really engage with the community. So we have the, the mailing lists. We have um, IRC uh, channels. So we really recommend don't be shy. Come in, you know, and engage with the community. Outstanding. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. We really appreciate it. I notice she's not wearing horns. Now, okay, Q5, be honest. Did their insidious niceness get to you a little bit? Because now not only are they going to these Linux conventions, but they're enlisting the help of Canadians who are famously nice. Are you feeling the pressure to run a little BSD now? Oh, yeah, they're definitely nice. And actually, <laughs> let me pause you right here because Alan has been quietly listening to me talk in our community about my preferences with desktop environments and how <laughs> I like to manage my system and how I like to run it. So he casually one day is like, oh, you should ask Ken about the one he's designing. So oh, I'm thinking, yeah. okay, sure, no big deal. I'll talk to him about it. So I talked to Ken about it, and I'm like, okay, you know, give me kind of a rundown. He's like, well, better yet, let me just show it to you. Oh, now, you I'm got to see say, it. I'm not going to say much, but uh. let me say that Lumina is unbelievable. Now, now keep in mind, you know, I'm a puppy Linux dev, but after checking out Lumina and where it is in its current alpha state, it's actually tempting me to install PCBSD on one of my laptops. But it it's seems so crazy to have another desktop. It really it was now. Was it sort of like? Uh, can you give me? A hit? It sounds like it maybe is a little bit of like a tiling window manager a bit. A no, bit? it's it's not. It's a you know it's a regular. Um, it's not a tiling window manager, but it's just. It's all the little things that make workflow so much quicker. Um, the seamless nature of how he's worked in uh, Life Preserver with ZFS is just unbelievable. Yeah, that is pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah. Ken's got some. Ken's got some skills, huh? Uh, yeah, I, I'll be. I'll be curious to follow the way that goes. So it's called Lumina. We've talked a little bit about it before. There's not a lot of details yet. L U M I N A. And he the, did say that it has – there's some distribution, it might be uh, Arch, that has actually already ported it over and is, <laughs> has it as an option. Uh, but I don't know exactly what distro that is. So Very if nice. somebody runs Linux and they want to test it out, I mean, obviously they won't get any of the ZFS features. But they can at least poke around and see what it, what's, yeah. what, how it works and what it's I, doing. I can't wait to try it. Hey, I could load PCVSD. Hey, hey. I mean, if it comes with a pair of horns. Well, uh, very good. So um, worth a trip, you think? Is it is it something you'd recommend folks go to next year? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, thinking back, you know, kind of comparing it to uh, Linux Fest Northwest, you know, because we had a bunch of our community members there. Mm -hmm. um, I've never been to either conference before. Um, this was my first year at Northwest. This is my first year at Southeast. And I know this may sound kind of cliche, but I really do mean this. Self felt like more of an extended family. Mm. Even though I knew none of these people before, after you know that one day on Friday, I felt like I was one of them. That southern charm um, is what you're saying. It got it, to you. It's exactly you know I had a great time at Linux Fest Northwest, and if you take all the goodness that was in that conference and you add in you know that legendary southern hospitality, yeah, you just you have a recipe for an amazing event. What about it being at a hotel? Did that give it a weird feeling at all, or was did that work really well? 
actually it worked really well. Uh, the layout and the way that they had the floor track and the individual uh, you know speaking rooms, everything was right there and easily accessible. So you could easily go from you know when you're going around talking to the different vendors, seeing what they have to offer, to oh there's a there's a talk in that room right there that I want to go to. Yeah, it wasn't like I need to go walk off and go up a hall and up a staircase right. and then find what room. Everything was there. Everything was easy to get to. Um, it was just it was a great event. Very cool. Well, maybe maybe we'll have to do a, a a live a live stream from there next year. You never know what's possible. It's interesting to see these events because um, you know they don't get a lot of coverage. There's not a lot of people talking about them yet. They're a major event that happens in the community, and um, I, I think they're you'd almost expect them to be. Uh, I don't know, dwindling, maybe uh, becoming less relevant with things like Hangouts that are available and Mumble and 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 everything else. But uh, in some ways, there seems to be more of them than ever, and they seem to be larger than ever. I I don't know. I I think maybe people somehow have managed to realize that there is actually some value in meeting in Meet Space somehow. I, I expected we would all just like be staring into the monitors for the rest of uh, for the rest of uh, humanity but we still manage to get together from time to time so if you go to a, a, a fest that we can't attend to we'd love to hear your report and one of the ways you could share your experience is by going to linuxactionshow.reddit.com start a thread there why not start a thread about doing a meetup that's what q5 did and you can also send us an email go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com click the contact link and choose uh well just send it to linux unplug choose linux unplug from the drop down and uh, or Linux Action Show, depending on the timing. That's all. I'll leave that to your savviness. That's up to you. If you're a, if you're an email ninja and think you can time it just right, you could also choose Linux Action Show. Uh, all right, guys. Well, any uh, anybody have anything to contribute before we run? I think that was a pretty good uh, pretty good coverage. I know uh, I know Riley was uh, thinking they were too nice. There's something a little off about that. Riley, are you okay? No, I'm not okay with it. <laughs> There's something off about it. Seriously, like I, I just see them in a dark room going it with like their hands up. Saying, those lights yeah. flashing, those those horns flashing in a dark room. What you're saying is you don't trust people who are nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what? You know what? It, it's like uh, there's in some ways they're they're they are there solving a same problem, and they just think they have a better way to do it. And I think it's like it's a bit of confidence in a way. I think it demonstrates the fact that they can show up. It's not a hostile thing. You know, they can share the room. It's something that's taken Microsoft a decade to figure out. I mean, we just now saw Microsoft really start to get it at Linux Fest Northwest. But the BSD guys, you know, they, they're they cut from the same cloth, just maybe uh, one that has a, more stitching. I don't know. Uh, all right, well, we'll leave it at that. I also had a link that I wanted to uh, ch- chat about, but uh, I think we'll save it for the big show. But if you guys want to do a little additional reading, I'll leave it to you. You can find it in the show notes. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Look for Linux Unplugged, episode 46. And also, uh, we're uh, we're putting a call out to have folks help fund our Patreon page that goes in to contribute to investments in the network. Patreon.com slash today. We're trying to do some crowdfunding to bring revenue up for the network so that way we can do things like hire contractors to resolve problems that we have or um, buy some on-location equipment to do some more on-location streaming like these types of events. And all of that is dependent on increasing our financing. And really, there's two ways that a network like ours could increase financing. We can add additional ads, and that's certainly something that we could consider doing. And we can also go to crowdfunding. And I believe... 
The real answer lies somewhere there in between. I think it's more about a balance and finding a mix and diversifying income sources for the network so that way we're here for the long haul. And that's what we're trying to do. So if you go over to patreon.com slash today, you can find out more information. You can pledge whatever you can afford. That money is distributed to all of the shows. All of the profits generated there go into the network. And it's celebrated via our Tech Talk Today podcast. As we reach different milestones, we have a little party in the show. Like the barbecue challenge is kind of like a fun way to just celebrate in the show. But it also means, oh, the network has achieved another level of funding, which means we can accomplish X, Y, Z. My big, big aboo right now is as the network has grown, we've greatly increased the complexity of our technical infrastructure to the point now where there's enough equipment that it really could take at least a part-time person coming in a couple of times a week, keeping it all running. And that's why I'm constantly struggling these days with hardware failures because it's just when you have this much equipment running 24-7, things happen, and you need somebody who has really solid IT experience in networking and storage and network-attached storage and really high-performance networking, but you also need someone who has broadcast equipment experience that understands about encoding, about the specialized needs that a certain rig might have, and that's sort of a nexus of talent that's extremely difficult to find and not free. But it's an example of something that we have to be able to do in order to keep moving the network forward because it just is getting to that point. And the way we can do that is by knowing we have a good, stable platform of funding by our audience. The folks who consume our shows can be the folks who fund our shows. So go to patreon.com slash today. We greatly, greatly appreciate your support. And check out Tech Talk today. In fact, join me live tomorrow. If you're listening to this on Tuesday night, we'll be covering the Google I.O. keynote live in Tech Talk today at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern. When that launches, you can join us in the, in the Mumble Room, our virtual lug, and comment away on the Google keynote as it happens. And we'll release that as a download so you guys can go catch all of the goodies that came out of Google I.O. So that'll be tomorrow's Tech Talk Today, episode 15, I believe, which will be uh, on June 25th as we are recording this episode. That right there, though, will wrap us up. So go over to linuxactionshow.reddit.com, help contribute and comment, and give us your thoughts, your feedback for this week's episode. We'd love to hear it. Don't forget to send us an email and all those kinds of goodies. We really appreciate it. Okay, Matt. Well, uh, guess what? We're all done. We, we can get out of here. We're, uh, we've wrapped up our Southeast Linux Fest coverage. And I'm, I think we're going to do some uh, how-to stuff on Sunday. I'm going to double-check the calendar. But I think we're going to have a great episode on Sunday's Linux Action Show. So I'll see you then, okay? All right. I'll see you then. Sounds good. All right. Thank you, everybody, for tuning this week's episode of the Linux Unplugged Show. We'll see you back on Sunday for Linux Action Show. And if you can't make it for some reason, I won't judge. But I'd love to see you back here on Tuesday for the next episode of Linux Unplugged. All right, everyone. See you right back here next week.